Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Look at Acts chapter 14. We're going to look at a, a story that uh, the songs that we've just praised the Lord with, I think, are very fitting. It's a picture of a man who was born lame. And the truth is, it's a real picture of, uh, of us. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of our desperate need for Christ, for what he alone is able to do in our lives. And there's three things that we're going to look at as we walk through this passage. Acts chapter 14, verses 8, really through 20. There's a picture of salvation. There's a, a plea to believe. And I think we have a lot to learn in this because the way that Paul deals with the gospel, the way that the Lord, uh, through the apostle Paul, shares his good news, I think is something that we can look at and we can take notes on in terms of how do we present the gospel to people around us. But then lastly, there's the idea of persecuted for the gospel. Paul is stoned, left for dead. Persecution is a part of the Christian life. First of all, a picture of salvation. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and he had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. It's interesting that there's a little phrase in there, uh, made well, that he had the faith to be made well. It's actually the word saved, sozo, it means saved. And it can be used in different ways. It can be used in the sense of physical healing, rescued from immediate danger. It can be talking about eternal salvation. It can be talking about immediate salvation, salvation or rescuing from immediate danger, whatever that might be at the moment. I think clearly here the idea is that the man was lame and that uh, there was no way he was ever going to walk in and of himself. He was listening to what the apostle had to say. Clearly the idea of listening here wasn't just physically, it was that he was listening with spiritual perception, with understanding, a willingness to heed, to believe. And Paul recognizes something unique in this man. He recognizes that he had the faith to be saved, to be made well. I think in a, in a bigger picture, the idea is of salvation, eternal salvation. This man serves us as a picture of our salvation. What's interesting is that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter, the apostle to the Jews, both have similar experiences with lame men at the very beginning of their public ministry, establishing them as apostles. If you look back and you see Acts chapter 3, verses 2 through 10, there is a strong similarity between the beginning of Peter's ministry and the beginning of Paul's ministry. The picture of salvation here, I think, is absolutely essential. In fact, the Lord says it in this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that idea of poor there means absolutely incapable of paying back what is owed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
When we come to an end of ourselves and we recognize that there is absolutely not anything that we can do to pay God back, that's what the Lord's talking about with regard to poverty. He's not talking about having a little bit of money, only being able to afford certain things. He's talking about utter, absolute destitution, hopelessness. This man was lame. The man in Acts chapter 3 is lame. They've been that way since birth. They have no hope of ever walking. They have no hope of ever being restored. They are destitute. And it's a picture of our salvation. If you compare the two stories and you look at how they correlate, I think there's several things that we can come out of this with. First of all, there was no strength in their feet. They were lame from birth. They had never walked. There was no way that anybody could say, well, uh, yeah, they must have just gotten better. I mean, they used to be able to walk. Maybe they had a disease for a little bit of time, and now they can walk again, so something changed physiologically. Nobody could ever say that. They had been lame from birth. They had never walked. I think it's interesting that there was an attention, there was a fixing uh, of, of the gaze of the apostles on these individuals. Both Peter and Paul have something take place within them that they recognize a spiritual dynamic in the midst of a physical reality. I think it's clearly that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it's clearly that they were following the Holy Spirit. I think it's clear that the Holy Spirit was raising something up, revealing something to them. They fixed their gaze on these individuals. This is a very specific term. It's a very specific thing that takes place. They weren't just walking around and and just kind of uh, going through the motions. The Holy Spirit directs their attention specific to these men. And I think it's clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who's orchestrating these events. The Holy Spirit's the one who has healed these men, not the apostles. The Holy Spirit directs their attention to these men because the Holy Spirit knows what he wants to do. I think that's important for us. How are we going about life where we are correctly related to the Lord, where we're constantly uh, paying attention to him so that we're not just going through the motions, we're we're not just walking through life, but when the Holy Spirit brings something to our attention, we recognize that it is from the Holy Spirit, and immediately we have our attention fixed upon what it is that he is placing before us, and we're asking him, what do you want us to do? How do you want to use us in the midst of this? Lord, how are you going to glorify your name throughout this particular situation? All around us, people are hurting, people are desperate, people, in effect, are spiritually lame. How would God use us in the midst of that, to reveal his glory. I think it's also interesting that both lame men were listening or giving the apostles their attention. It's very clear that these men were tuned in to what Peter had to say or what Paul had to say. With Peter, it came after the fact. (laughs) Peter looks at the guy and all of a sudden the guy thinks he's going to get some alms. He's going to get some money. So he really pays attention. With this man that we see here with Paul, 
He's been listening to what the apostle had to say. Either way, both of them tuned in. Either way, both of them were ready to receive what it is that was about to be done, what, it was, be, what was being said. I think that's important. You know, that God is at work all around us. He's not dependent upon us, folks. He is at work in people's hearts and lives all around us. We get the privilege of serving him. We get the privilege of participating with him, experiencing him. The question is, are we vessels that are willing to be used by the Lord in whatever way he chooses? Because there are people all around us that need him, that he is already at work in, that he's already tuning them to himself. Lastly, there's healing with immediate results. They stood up, they leaped up, they begin to walk. There's a miracle that takes place. And that miracle was not simply for the sake of healing somebody physically. The miracle was to take place to establish the apostolic authority as well as the message of the gospel, that this message truly is divine in origin. It is from God himself. It is pointing to the sufficiency, the goodness, the love, the care of God. I think that's essential. So a picture of salvation, but also a plea to believe. Verse 11, he says, when the crowd saw What Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now this is an amazing moment. Paul and Barnabas are in the midst of this particular city. They've been preaching the gospel. They have come there out of having been persecuted in the former city. They've now shared the gospel. They are beginning to walk around. They're taking the gospel to the Gentiles. People are listening. A healing has taken place. And immediately, there's a response to these two men. So much so that outside the city where where the, the priests to Zeus dwell... They, they immediately must have gotten the word and, and they were saying, hey, the gods are amongst us. And so they grabbed the oxen, they put wreaths of garland around these things and in they come and they're going to make sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas have no clue what's going on. I, I, can, only, I can only imagine the confusion, can you? I mean, something from God has just happened. You're, you're watching this and, and you're seeing the people's response. You don't understand the language of what they're saying. And the next thing you know, that they're coming in with priests in order to make sacrifices to you because they're calling you a god. Wow. I can only imagine what some people... Uh, I, yes. Thank you. We're grateful that you have viewed us for who we truly are. Really. Paul and Barnabas are distraught about this. You know, there's an interesting phrase here that I think you don't want to miss. They saw what Paul had done. You catch this? They saw what Paul had done. Who did this? Paul? Paul goes on in great lengths to say, what are you people doing? It's not us. 
It's the living God. It's the creator God. It's the good God who did this. We're trying to tell you about him. And now you're turning around worshiping us? It's not us. It's God who did this. They saw what Paul had done. I don't know that things have changed a whole lot since then. I think, unfortunately, we still get our eyes on the things that we think we understand. We still get our eyes on the people, the person. We still neglect God in the midst of it all. We're trying to evaluate things, measure things by what we can understand, the boxes that we can draw, what fits in our own mind, what makes sense to us. We still evaluate things by performance and personality. And that's exactly what was going on here. They actually call Barnabas Zeus. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of funny. I don't know what Barnabas' response is. I'm Zeus? What, who, what the world are you talking about? Paul, they call Hermes. He's, he's the chief spokesperson, the chief spokesman for this. Evidently, historically, there had been a legend in this city that Zeus and Hermes had visited an older couple, and that older couple had names, Philemon and Baucus, who were rewarded for their hospitality. I don't know how to pronounce Baucus. It sounds like something else, but that's how I pronounced it. And so, since you don't know either, I just try to do it so that I, that I, that I say it with authority, and therefore you think that's the way to say it. I, I have no clue. <laughs> It sounds like, I guess it's a woman's name. I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Older couple. Zeus and Hermes came, and everybody missed out on it. And the older couple was blessed. And everybody got to see the after effect. And, and the, uh, the kind of the, the, the rule of thumb here was, don't miss out. When the gods come to visit, you better get in on it. You better cash in on this. And so now, here comes Paul and Barnabas with the message of the gospel of grace, which is a message that cuts right through the flesh. And they totally miss it. Why? Because they look at what Paul had done. They give all the emphasis on that which they can understand. What fits in their world. Their mindset. And boy, here they come. We got to cash in on this too. We don't want to miss out like the last time this happened. We want to be blessed. We want all the benefits. Again, they're measuring things by material standards. Because the truth is, they could be coming to Paul and Barnabas and listening to the message of the gospel of grace and have an eternal benefit that far supersedes anything this world could ever offer. You know, I, I, I said this, and I, I really believe this, because this has just hit me this week over and over and over again. Are we really any different? Is our response to the message of the gospel of grace any different? Are we seeing in society a different response to the message of the gospel of grace than what we see right here? A twisting of it in order to fit our own understanding, to fit our own thinking, to put us into control, and what's in it for me? I don't think so. And I think that's the challenge that all of us have. 
Are we willing to come before the Lord and glory in what he's done? Because we were lame and there was nothing that we could do. And we are totally and utterly and absolutely dependent upon him and his grace and his goodness and his love for us and what he did for us at the cross. And now, as believers, we recognize that there continues to be this issue, what Jesus himself brought up in John 15, that apart from him, we can do absolutely not one thing. And we are fully and totally dependent upon him to accomplish in us and through us what ultimately he alone can accomplish. Are we walking in that? Are we trusting him in this? Is God being glorified and revealed through us in the midst of it? In verse 14, Barnabas and Paul respond. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I love their response, don't you? When they begin to be praised and when they begin to understand that they are about to be worshipped for something they know they didn't do. Their immediate response is to be distraught and they show it by actually tearing their clothes, running out amongst the people and saying, no, you aren't to worship us. We're here to tell you about the one who's worthy of worship and to turn to him and to turn away from these vain things. Verse 16 says, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, and even saying these things. With difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Even though they ran out amongst, they tore their clothes, they began to share the gospel. They still had difficulty in restraining the people from worshiping them, sacrificing to them, putting them at a level that they knew that should never take place. I think it's interesting how Paul responds, and I think there's something to learn out of this, because we are living in a day and age that I don't think is very unsimilar to this. I think we have people all around us that have some form of spirituality. And they worship all kinds of stuff. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6, we were, we were walking through this and we are talking about our area. We were talking about all the different things just in our area that people are, are just immersed into. Spiritual to be sure, but utterly vain and empty. You could go through the list. The, my favorite was, uh, if I could put it that way, was Zozobra. Are you kidding me? People from all over the world come to take a piece of paper and put it into a stupid paper mache, 80-foot doll, whatever the heck it is, and light the thing on fire as if that's going to take away your problems. How sad. How pathetic. Folks, we have the truth. And it's not because... Of, of us, it's not because somehow we're superior any more than Paul and Barnabas considered themselves superior. That's why they ran out amongst the people. We're just like you. 
We're, we're of the same nature as you. We have the same need of God that you do. There's no difference here. We have the truth and we want to share it with you because only God himself can rescue us. We are lame from birth and only God can heal. That's the idea. What does Paul say to them? And I think this is important to note. I think he gives us three different things here that we can really begin to look at and learn from and actually begin to to incorporate into the way that we deal with people who do not know God. They may be spiritual, but they do not know God. The first is that God is a living God. Right? He makes this very clear. He's a living God. He's not dead like the idols they worshipped. He's not a figment of their imagination like Zeus, where there were simply stories about him. This schizophrenic, powerful guy that just at the whim could treat people whatever way he chose. Have you ever studied this? I mean, the guy's a nut. Really? Where's the security? Where's the compassion? Where's the love? You won't find it in Zeus. I can assure you that. There's no relationship, personal relationship. Think about what we have in Christianity. Think about the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We have a personal relationship. God with us, Emmanuel. In spite of what he knows us to be and what we're not, he loves us. And he promises, I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. And even when you're faithless, I'll remain faithful because that's who I am. Wow. The security that we have in that. Fear of punishment rather than forgiveness. No hope. See, we have a living God. And he's not just up there somewhere watching us at a distance. (laughs) I hate that song. Don't you? Because it's got a catchy tune to it, dadgummit. And every time I hear it, I start having that stupid thing run through my mind. And i got to replace it with something else. You don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? Heaven's sakes. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not singing it for you. No, 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 no. You know, that's, no. God is watching us from a distance. Heaven's sakes. Deistic at best. No hope. Folks, we have a living God who gave his life for us. We know love by this, that what did Jesus do? He went to the cross and he gave his life. He gave himself so that we might have life, that we might have hope, that because we're born into sin, we might be rescued. Because God knows there's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. Well, secondly, he talks to the fact in verse 15 that he's a creator God. And I think this is really cool. Because when you look at creation, we recognize that there's got to be a creator. How can you look at a microscope and look at the detail and almost the infinite minutia? Or or look through a telescope and, and look at almost the infinite vastness? And you look at how God's created these things and how he's put them all together and how on this globe, this earth, our lives, things just come together in their massive complexity. 
and not understand that where there's a design, there's got to be a designer. Amen? I mean, we look, look at creation. How can you look at Sandia at sunset and not understand there's a God? How can you look at all the different ways in which God has revealed himself, his power, his divine attributes through this creation and not understand that there is a creator? And that's what he's saying. Look around. (laughs) He gives very specific things. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. All living things have been created by God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens. And folks, i, I got to be honest with you. I know we're very intelligent. I know scientifically it is very difficult. And I'm sure that there are some amongst you who understand, you know, you, you, there's day-age theories and there's gaps between. I, I think we need to take the literal plain view of Scripture and understand when he says six days, he means six days. I really do. And I'm not throwing stones. You're my brother or sister in Christ. If you believe, you know, the rest, amen. I, you know, we're not going to depart fellowship on that. But I think six days is six days. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And I believe today, as believers, that Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. And praise the Lord for that. He created the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything that is in them. And guess what? He did it by the word of his power, and guess how it all holds together? By the word of his power. Period. He's the creator. He's a good God. That's the third thing. He's a good God. And I I put good because he didn't use that word. But listen what he talks about. He talks about the fact that he doesn't force himself on anyone. He's permitted each nation, speaking directly of the Gentiles, each ethnicity, to go their own way. They chose to go the way they desired. And yet, even in spite of that, even though they're worshiping Zeus or they're worshiping four-footed animals or or they're worshiping idols made out of of wood or stone or, or precious metals, even in spite of that, God still has witnessed, he still gives a testimony of himself by doing good. And he gives three things. He he allows the rain from heaven to come. He gives fruitful seasons. He allows each one to be satisfied or filled in their hearts with food and gladness. Wow. In spite of the fact that this is his creation and and as humanity, uh, some have decided not to worship him, not to give him credit for who he is. He still does good. He still allows the rain to come. He still allows there to be fruitful seasons. And he still allows there to be a filling of the hearts with food and with gladness. Luke chapter 18 verse 19 And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? You remember the conversation? Why do you call me good? No one is good except who? God alone. God alone is good. God alone is constantly seeking what's in our best interest in spite of our reaction to him, our response to him. If you look over at Romans chapter 1, I can't help but read through this and 
think of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. And I don't want to go through all of it, but I, I think there's some key moments within this passage in Romans that are important to, to remember, to reflect on. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When you suppress the truth, that means you don't want to know it. It, it means that it's there, it's available, and you're trying to get rid of it. And here he makes it very clear, how do they suppress the truth? They do it in unrighteousness. Things that do not measure up to the righteous deeds or activities of God, the holiness of God. In verse 19, he says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. There's a design. Therefore, there's a designer. There's creation. Therefore, there's a creator. There's a picture. There's artistry. Therefore, there's an artist. And what Paul's making very clear is that God, through creation, has revealed himself that he is an all-powerful God. But in spite of that, people reject. People don't want anything to do with them. Because to agree that there's a creator means that we've been created. Which, in our flesh, we really don't want to submit, do we? We don't want to surrender. We don't want somebody who's bigger, stronger, telling us what to do. Mm. The truth of the matter is, is we've twisted even that because the Lord is good. And so every time he tells us to do something, is it just because he likes seeing us in a quandary? No. It's because he knows what's best for us and he is always desiring what's best for us. When God says, don't do this, it's not because he's trying to keep us from something that is really wonderful and excellent. It's because he knows it's painful it's horrific. And he knows that's not what we've been created for. So when God says things, it's always out of the motivation for our best. Paul is going into this crowd and he's pleading with them. Believe. Believe. Look around. God created all things. He's a living God. He's a creator, and he's good. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he came in order to rescue us by sending his own son to do for us what we could never do on our own. We can't heal ourselves because we've been born lame. As a result of this, Paul is persecuted. Verse 19, what a switch. <laughs> what, a, what a polar opposite. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. What was going on in Antioch? It's where the church was, right? Great revival was taking place. Great awakening was taking place. Iconium is where Paul and the group had just come from. 
And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. What an interesting thing. The Jews followed him, chased after him. That's, that's what persecution means. Has the idea of pursuing with the intent to harm. They came after him. They came from Antioch. They came from Iconium. They found out where he was going. And they win over the crowds. Isn't that ironic? Does that strike you as ironic? The Jews who had the Old Testament, who were religious, who had the one true God... Paul says they had the very oracles of God, the very word of God. It's great in every respect. It's beneficial in every respect to be Jewish because of their history, their heritage, and what they got to see God do. And what did they do? They partnered with people that were worshiping pretty much anything and everything under the sun in order to stomp out, stamp out the gospel. They stone Paul. They think he's dead. They drag him out of the city. But God raises them up. Now, we don't know whether Paul was actually dead or not. Some people think that maybe he was. I don't know. It doesn't say that. They think he's dead. Clearly, a miracle takes place. Because after being stoned in this way, after being supposed to be dead, to get up, go back in the city, which is another interesting thing. I don't know what you think about that. These people had obviously left him. They thought he was dead too. He goes back into the city. I wonder how God used that. The next day he goes on with Barnabas to Derby to the next city. And what does he do? Begins to preach the gospel. <laughs> Are we catching a picture here? What was Paul's life all about? I would suggest it was all about Christ. I would suggest it didn't matter what happened to him. Material things weren't the most essential things. He trusted the Lord to provide them. And he just continued to preach the gospel in spite of the persecution, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the things that he he knew he was going to go through. I think it's important in Matthew chapter 5 what the Lord says, verse 10 and 12. He says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He doesn't say, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, blessed are those who have been persecuted for, for, and I'm paraphrasing, for being an idiot. For the sake of righteousness, following God, walking in his ways. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or Paul, in in saying this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be mocked. You'll be laughed at. We see this happening all over the world where actual physical persecution is taking place. People are being killed because they refuse to deny Christ. God bless them. What a testimony to us. How are we walking in what God has for us? How are we living in such a way that in everything, the Lord is being glorified? He is being given credit as those able to walk. We're testifying about the one who has healed us. 
How are we giving him credit rather than absorbing it to ourselves as if somehow we're worthy of it or that we had anything to do with it? (laughs) How are we sharing the gospel? How is the gospel being proclaimed through our attitudes and our actions? How are we giving credit to the Lord? I'll close with this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul speaks to some of the difficulties that he's gone through in verses 1 through 6. And he, and he talks about how he had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. He suffered because of sharing the gospel. In verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. In other words, for our own selfish motivation. We didn't do this for us. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men. We didn't want to be given credit for anything. Worshipped either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. How are we walking in such a way where we're we're deflecting any credit given to us and we're giving the one who ultimately absolutely deserves credit? How are we honoring him? How are we giving credit to him? How are we worshiping him? How are we glorifying him? Do we remember that we were born into sin. We were lame from birth with no hope, no relationship, that God is the one who has rescued us. We believed in him, and now we get to continue to believe in him. Are we pointing to the creator? Are we pointing to the living God? Are we pointing to the goodness of God? And are we giving him credit? Are we giving him glory? Are we worshiping him and honoring him in everything that we do, in everything that we say? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.